Welcome to the DP30 Emmy Audio Pod. And then vanished, and it's not all here. And I was like, well, it doesn't work. And the reason. Oh, now you're frozen. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> it's a pleasure to now... see you, but I am still moving. And you are not. Oh, now oh you're like. Oh, my God. All right, hang on. It's the joy of technology. This. I'm on my bed now. Today, Kathy Shulman, the producer and writer of many of the episodes of The First Lady. Okay, we're good. My year old has been similarly warned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, so how did you become a producer in the first place? Before you were complaining. Um, <laughs> I became a producer because I, I, I majored um, in playwriting at Yale. And I was, uh, I also had a weird, I had a weird situation happen that my father was killed in a car accident right before my senior year. And when I got out of college and um, moved to New York, I was lucky to have a couple of plays, you know, get, get put up actually Mm -hmm. um, off, off, off Broadway. And um, I was really struggling for money. Like, I think we were sort of paying to have our plays produced at that point or something kind of similar. And a friend said to me, you know, what about the movie business? And I was like, the movie, the what? Um, you know, I didn't really know much about it. I was really a theater person and uh, I took an interview with a producer um, that very night and uh, which is a funny story in itself because he never had time to interview me. He just said, are you the kid from Yale? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, here's a call sheet show up, you know, at call time. I was like, call time. What is that? And um, anyway, I did that at 4am the next day and it was Captain Bigelow's second movie. Mm. It was called Blue Steel. And um, I remember thinking, like looking at this woman and thinking, oh, well, that's what I'll be. I'll be like this writer, producer, director person, and I'll do that tomorrow. And that seems simple enough. And then it was years and years and years before I worked with a female director again, actually, maybe like close to 20 years. And, um, and you know, but anyway, the bug bit me there. And then I started producing and that was in 1987, I think. Did it fit, just fit your skill set on top of be your creative side? Was it the... the- all the pieces came together, right? I liked the idea of being a vision keeper. I, I thought it was an interesting challenge that, you know, you, you come up with an idea and oftentimes it would be my idea. Sometimes it would be an idea in collaboration with the writer or a director or some combination. But then the idea that you had to get from that point to, to the finish line and try to keep, you know, integrity um, and, and keep vision on that idea the whole way through. And the more I learned about it, the bigger the challenge, you know, sort of seemed because you start to realize that what are the chances that by the time a thousand people have, you know, touched, it's about a thousand people that get yeah. involved in any, any production of any size. And, you know, what are the chances that you're going to get from here to there and still have some kind of clarity of vision? So, you know, when everything is a jumble and there's so many different opinions. And so I really liked that idea of, you know, sort of staying the course and seeing if I could, you know, essentially balance the ship the whole way through. And I, I really enjoyed that. And then I, I like building things, you know, I'm really like into, I'm very entrepreneurial. So I like to, you know, build something from a dream, you know, into a thing. And so I think that's sort of what it was. And, and you know, on the writing side, you know, I was for many, many years, you know, I was sort of like a secret writer. Um, I mean, I was a writer to start, but I was a secret writer in the sense that I would just rewrite everybody's scripts as that was my process of doing notes you know I would just contribute on the on the draft and say if you like this use it if you don't not but it was an easier way for me to communicate and just as the years went on I started to realize like you know I I really want to do more of this on my own and not just constantly be um 
and a push and pull with the writers. Like, what if I was doing it myself? Maybe I wouldn't push and pull. And then I clobbered myself worse than anyone would have probably in the end, because, you know, we're all very critical of ourselves as we're doing it. You know how that goes. <laughs> so do you, is there a sense of uh, career along the way? I mean, obviously uh, crash was kind of the, the crash. I, I actually <laughs> think the first time I didn't meet you was when Bob Yard was trying to convince me you were the devil. Oh, <laughs> how did that go? He, it was a very nice lunch. I didn't really believe him, but I, it was a <laughs> lovely lunch. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an interesting story that you bring it up, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, well, what your question was career, like, right. Really. Yeah, career, you, career. I mean, do you think, okay, now I'm getting here and you're getting here or are you just really project by project? This is my passion at the moment. And I'm going to focus on this. And well, I've actually kind of had the opposite problem, which is I seem to never have a lack of stories to tell or see things that I see. Like, it seems that if I were to turn around like five more times today, I'll come up like five more things will seem interesting to me than I want to tell a story about it. So I've had to do this like process of, you know, getting a little bit like more anchored and what do you really want to prioritize because it becomes, you know, unmanageable. Um, but, you know, my career, I think, was very much the re- has been the result of an intersection that happened between my gender politics and my uh, creative and business ventures. And what happened was that, you know, the years were very hard, particularly, you know, in the first, I'd say 25, you know, of, of 36. Um, <laughs> the first 25, yeah, I thought you were gonna say- the Overnight uh, sensation, 25 years later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're like 25 months, no. So I think that the first, it was really hard, you know, I think to be a woman trying to do this and I got into some really bad scuffles, you know, and to say the least, you know, obviously an over 10 year lawsuit with Bob, with uh, Mike Lovitz and then another situation where where Bob did what he did um, on Crash. And so basically uh, what happened was it was radicalizing me at the same time. Um, and I believed, you know, that a lot of what was happening to me was gender based. And, um, you know, and so I sort of reinvested in, in, and recommitted to seeing if I could try to make positive change, you know, in the, in the business. And that's when I got involved with women in film. And, you know, after just a year or so being involved in the organization, I became its president for over a decade, you know, and now I've launched Reframe, which is a systemic change project. And, you know, and now I think my activism has become much more intersectional between, you know, it's women and diverse people and how they interconnect, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's, and, and, and my whole career therefore grew to be about race, class, and gender. Like everything I do seems to be about that. So did I think of it? Probably not. Did it think of me? Kind of, but it became everything. Like everything was interconnected for me. And I became more and more interested in, you know, particularly telling women's stories. And then as I became more you know, I, I got very involved in the data collection of, you know, what was really going on with women. And what I found fascinating is that the that so much of the majority marketplace is actually driven by women in film, television, and streaming. And then I thought, well, why do we keep being told that we have to make everything for boys and men then? Like, if it's kind of weird, like if the majority buyer is female, why is the whole focus of the industry making everything for boys and men? I was taught as an executive and as a producer how to make content for men. I wasn't taught how to make content for women. It never came up. And we were told that teenage boys drive everything. Now, it's funny because right now they're the last driver. So in other words, teenage boys are much more um, inclined to watch short form content and do other things on the Internet and much less inclined, 
you know, to, to get involved in long form. So it's pretty funny that we've had such a flip-flop. And so for me, it became, you know, kind of about the marketplace. That's where the business of my career came in that I started to realize, well, besides the fact that I feel passionate about this and besides the fact that I really want stories about women and diverse people to be told, it's also a smart marketplace, you know, play. And, uh, you know, I'm a business person too. And, and, and that's, when, that's why I formed my company well, which really was the first of its, you know, type as a female facing, you know, full services, independent production company to be followed by Reese's shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, you know, and now Bruna has it and there are a whole bunch of us and thank God and all people I adore, you know, who are doing this thing. Um, and, and we've been able to have a lot of success with it because the marketplace shifted uh, to benefit from this majority marketplace. And you mostly stayed in film, even though mostly television film. seems like an easier path a little bit. No? Yeah. Yeah, I, I really had to, I love television now. I'm so excited about it. And, um, you know, but I think that because I came, I'm sort of old. I think I came up in the, in believing that the more courageous writing and artistic medium would be film. But I think that's flip-flopped now um, quite a lot because the market, you know, because the theatrical marketplace is so driven by, you know, it, it requires so, such huge theatrical success. So much, in other words, you have to turn so much economic profit to have a success that it drives some of the more exploratory work into television and obviously streaming to contribute to that all stuff we all know. So now TV is, you know, obviously um, a really exciting place to be working. So I'm, I'm of course the advocate for the other side of that argument to some degree, but <laughs> yeah, I want your to time up with that. If you, if you advocate for theatrical, that gives me more opportunity to do what I love. You know, I just feel like I'm always, I'm always, you know, fighting an uphill battle yeah. on the theatrical. It's really, really hard. And it's the not ecosystem, people, play. you know, I tell people, explain that, you know, 35, 40, 35, 35 to 40% of the revenue comes from movies that aren't big movies. Yeah. Over the year, going back yes. before COVID. Yes. And that the majority, that two thirds of the actual movies are movies that are not big movies. Yes. And that's what creates the ecosystem that makes the whole thing work. But people kind of want to, people are in this moment, I think, or particularly leadership in the studios that think that they can cherry pick what's going to succeed and what's not. And I think that's destructive ultimately, but they haven't figured that out yet. So, I'm well, sorry. you know, it's interesting, you know, I'm involved right now. I, I, I realize that this conversation is more about the first lady, but, you know, I'm in, the, I'm in post-production on a, on a major, huge movie for Sony called The Woman King, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood and also starring Viola Davis, um, you know, and, and yeah, I definitely feel the pressure of what, of, you know, what are you, what are we going to do to make sure that we drive in that half a billion dollars worth of domestic box, you know, whatever it takes. And like, right. that is, that's a high bar, you know, it's a yeah. high bar. Um, yeah. And, but the film is not IP based and it is not franchised or well, it could become a franchise, I suppose, but it wasn't designed that way. And it's not, um, you know, obviously comic book. And so, you know, but it is, an action epic about female warriors, you know, so, you know, we'll see. And, and, you know, but I sense the fear. I really do. Yeah. Well, even Tom, I mean, Tom talks a big game about staying with theatrical, but he's sold a lot of stuff to non-theatrical <laughs> in spite of it. And, you know, but if the if a movie like that does, if, I mean, I guess everything everywhere altogether is a good sign for you. Yes. On some level. I think so. I think so. And to go even bigger. So first lady, 
is it what did it come to you formed as that particular group of first ladies no nothing did even you close. did you cast your way into who you were going to make the ladies that you were focusing on or where what was the evolution um okay so three things happened at the same time which is i guess the kismet that sometimes takes for something to happen and the first thing was that i had been i saw the movie this is a few number of years ago now. This took a while, you know, and I saw the movie Jackie that starred Natalie Portman. And uh, there was this one little sequence in the movie where, where she was showing the press corps, the East Wing for the very first time. And I guess before that it hadn't been allowed. It was considered too private, too intimate. And she just said things in this in the movie, right? She just said things like, oh, Mamie put this here and Lady Bird put this here. And by the way, you know, we all slept in the same room, you know, even though we changed the wallpaper or the thing. And then of course I had a slightly per- <laughs> perverse thought. You went just where I did. And I was like, oh my God, all of these women were in this bedroom with those guys, with the American presidents. And it was almost like my brain filled with all these like, like cartoon pictures of American presidents. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's so weird. And I literally said out loud, you know, uh, to my husband who was with me, I said, what if these walls could talk? Like, can you imagine what they heard? So that was number one. And I'd been tossing around this idea pretty consistently, you know, about what, what could we do to try to be inside the walls of what women heard in the bedroom? That's where it started in the bedroom. Then I met a writer named Aaron Cooley, who had written a spec, a young writer um, who also went to Yale, you know, my alma mater met with him and he had written a script um by about Edith Wilson and uh he said do you think we can make a series about Edith Wilson and I almost fell off my chair I thought that was so funny like who was going to go to a series about Edith Wilson I was like sorry Aaron I don't think so I I, well I'm certainly not gonna be able to sell it and who the heck do you think is going to that all right third thing I'm very close with Viola Davis and she did a mean impersonation of, of both Michelle and Barack, by the way, um, back in those days. And so I always used to tease her that she had to play them, not just one, but them. And um, so when I was in the meeting with Aaron, I had this like kinetic moment when I was like, you know, I've been wanting to do a sort of pastiche collage of the women in the White House. And you already know about one of them, Edith Wilson. I now know more about, El- I, based on reading your script, I now know more about Edith Wilson than I ever did. And um, and I think that my friend Viola would be willing to play Michelle. Um, I don't know why I thought that, but it turned out to be true. Mm. I had never asked her to play it, but I kept pretending she was going to do it. So, um, and then um, pitched the idea to her. So we started, we started, you know, and, and that's when Lions Guy got involved, um, which was basically, we're going to do three first ladies with one of them being Michelle Obama. Mm. And uh they agreed to develop a couple of scripts and then, you know, and well, well, we, we sold it to, to Showtime and together they agreed to develop three scripts and that they would make their decision about the um, season on the basis of three scripts. So then came the big discussion of who next, right? Besides Michelle Obama. And mm-hmm. so for me, you know, the way, the way it happened is like in thinking about what is Michelle Obama's time in the White House, you know, signify or what's it really about? And it's really all about racism and anti-racism. So I was like, where did that start? And to me, it was Eleanor, you know, and first of all, she's the first modern first lady, in my opinion, she walked in and said, can I have a job? Can I have an office? They were like, what would you do with it? But she did. And, and, and she got, and obviously desegregation was like one of her main, main, you know, focuses. And so it felt like the root, like if we were going to do it, like a, a, an antithesis, you know, sort of the antecedent story. Mm-hmm. 
And so then there was, so now there was Eleanor and Michelle. So now what? Um, and I always thought it should be three because I didn't want it to be such direct point and counterpoint. I thought like we need to have like, I want this to be about similar issues and experiences that they go through, but I don't want it to be, this is the good and this is the bad, or this is the democratic and this is the Republican, or this is like, so the three was going to cause a more natural, you know, point counterpoint structure, I thought. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, Anyway, so in researching more of Eleanor, I knew quite a lot about Eleanor, but in researching more about Eleanor, it's like, you know what, it's really, it looks like what she, we should really focus on for her. There were so many issues with Eleanor and she was, you know, involved in the sociopolitical landscape for so long, but it felt like, okay, I think for what we're doing for a show about women, it's, it's, it's desegregation and it's women's voices, really, or even sort of the emergence of, of in some ways, of women's rights. And uh, okay, let's do that, right? And then it was like, where do you go? Well, Betty was kind of a logical next place to go because, you know, to me, Betty, you know, I didn't know as much about her as I do now, obviously, but but I did know, and I was quite interested in the fact that, you know, she had been amazingly um, open about breast cancer. I knew that for personal reasons, having to do with some family. And, and I had sort of understood that. And I thought, well, God, so she talked about breast cancer. We know she's involved in the ERA and God knows we all know she, the drug and alcohol story. And I was like, this could be really good. And they were interested at the network and that we had a Republican in with our Democrats because right. we have a whole country to please. And uh, at the church, time worries about that very often, but yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I, uh, can't really even I barely I can't see Betty in a partisan way anyway in my brain but she was you know technically Republican and married to a Republican president but she's very you know her own thing anyway so that's how it came together and those were the three women and um it was also kind of nice how they were spaced but we were like wow they didn't know each other like I guess in my original thought they would like meet each other on the beginnings and the ends right of their time and now they were completely separated so then we had two choices well do we do something very you know um avant-garde and let them sort of speak through time at which point showtime said yeah or a dead body or um do we... <laughs> that didn't go they, well. they fight crime yeah and they fight crime and <laughs> they have suits and hat, you know make yeah. them the superheroes so that didn't work and then the second version was well could we, you know, try to create a structure where they sort of finish these other sentences, meaning and this would became the fascination of the process. Could we do something where one story kicks off a concept that gets investigated in a second and it maybe gets completed in the third? And, you know, I think this has been a tricky thing, you know, to make work. And maybe some people think it did and some people think it didn't and who knows. But I, I think that it became really interesting to see if we could, you know, kind of move through time, but show the similarities of this, of the march through time when it comes to women's voices. I, I for me, Michelle ends up being, not Michelle. Uh, Betty. Uh, Bet, huh? Michelle Pfeiffer playing Betty. Michelle Pfeiffer playing Betty. Very yes. confusing in the right, if you want to so know the confusion in the writer's room, we had to start calling them like MP and, and Mo, M-O, because everybody would like interchange Michelle and Michelle and it would get very confusing, yeah. <laughs> But, but Betty Ford is really the, in some ways, the, the most surprising. I mean, I think we have familiarity with Michelle Obama and the history of Eleanor Roosevelt is deep and rich and explored in many ways before, not that it's not done beautifully here, but Betty Ford, the kind of, in, for me, the first instinct was Michelle Pfeiffer is Betty Ford, really? That's kind of a stretch. 
And oh, interesting. Yeah. She's pulled me into it in a way that, I mean, obviously with Michelle Pfeiffer, it's always face first. Everything in the world is face. You can't get past that face. No. But it doesn't matter. You know, it's like the story is so intimate and it's such an interesting piece of writing. And she has so many things that are kind of unexpected yeah. from her that it really kind of whole, brings everything else together in, this, in a very beautiful way, I think. Well, you know, you may have identified also that, you know, this historical fiction writing is tricky because this balance of what are you allowed to, <laughs> allowed, what can you allow yourself to create and what, how responsible do you have to be to history? I think that because there was so much less sort of known about Betty, we had a freedom. Now we didn't break any rules. The rules were pretty simple. They were, if we can prove in more than one source that something happened public facing, either politically or, or even personally public facing, then we go with that story. Like that's what we do. But if we can't find, but if we, but if we can't find anything in between these events, or if we don't have more than one source that feels dependable, then we, invent what we think is true with one primary goal or in mind or one primary driver, which is we really spend time getting to know what kind of people these three characters were. And we tried to always look at decisions that we were making about imagined moments through the eyes of the character, right? Like what does she usually, if, if we don't have a situation like this, what does she right. usually do in this kind of situation? You know what I mean? And like, we could start to see like if, okay, well, we don't know what happened at her kid's graduation, but we know what happened at a different kid's graduate or whatever, you know what I mean? Right. We would try to do it like that. So anyway, the point being that, you know, with Betty, there was more, we had more freedom probably in our, we probably gave ourselves a little bit more freedom. We were less scared, you know, and I think that the writing showed that. And the other thing that's amazing about Betty is that conveniently her life organizes in a very nice three act structure, given the fact that she has a complete meltdown and, and absolute bottom out in act two, and then a complete, and then a total recovery in act three. So it was very convenient of her to organize her life that way. Um, but it worked out really well compared to, you know, Michelle is an unfinished story. Now I'm talking about Michelle right. Obama. It, she's, an, she's an unfinished story. So you don't kind of know where you're ending up. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, with Eleanor, she's kind of always in success mode. Right. Um, so we had to find, and, and I think we, we lean more on her personal relationship. You know, we learned more. We, I was most fascinated with Eleanor by the I'm gonna, I was almost going to say the love triangle between herself Hick and 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 Franklin but it's not a triangle because it's not a triangle because that's right. not you know, that would presume that there was some kind of interconnectivity but how interesting my impression is that she had an enormously wonderful marriage to her husband Franklin as a partnership as a collaboration as a respectful adult sophisticated, beautiful relationship. But then she also had a very, in our particular story, and I think there were more, a very deep love with somebody else. Co and, and it was all kind of open. They kind of had the first open marriage mm -hmm. that I remember. I, mean, I don't know who had the first open marriage. I meant <laughs> that you could, <laughs> a notable right. you know, open marriage, at least for themselves. It was open to each other. It wasn't open to the world. So anyway, I don't know what I'm saying, but just, I forgot where we were going, but just something along the lines of the fact that, you know, you had to find those places where you could investigate. Yeah, social media and the Roosevelt presidency would not be a good combination. 
there were so many things going on that we didn't know or well, and probably shouldn't have known. I mean, that's the thing. And it's by the way, I'll tell you, that's so funny you point that out because social media was the, the trickiest part of doing the Michelle story, the Michelle Obama story, because we knew too much because there was too much out there, because it had been commented on so much, because you already knew where the court of public opinion was going to go. So you you find yourself self-censoring, hmm. you know, and you're afraid too, because you love them. Right. You know? Yeah. So you actually have your first writing credits as a, uh, in film and television on this. Was that a decision? Was that the circumstance was different than other things you've done? Or was it more writing? Was it like, okay, yeah. I'm thinking on these two it was, episodes? Or? Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm out of the writing closet. Um, <laughs> you know, frankly, I, I credit uh, Gary Levine and Kevin Beggs, you know, who were running, who are running a Showtime and, and Lionsgate that, you know, when it came out that I'd been doing a lot of writing, <laughs> when it became, well, it, it's, there's a very specific story. It happened right before Thanksgiving, the year before we shot. And um, nicely Gary was complimenting a particular scene written about Michelle Obama and one of the other writers said well Kathy wrote that at which point everybody froze and said are you in the writer's guild <laughs> panic attack and I was like no and um anyway and so I uh they said do you want to do this and I and those two men men said do you want to do this and I said I do want to do this and then my first day in the writer's room was an abject disaster because I was still a producer and I was you know, the phone was ringing off the hook. I had two assistants running in my crazy life. I've got movies going here and other people in the writer's room were like, you know, oh, Kath, this isn't kind of how it works in here, you know? And I'm sort of used to being in charge of everybody. And suddenly, you know, I was a, a really an emerging new voice writer in this room. You know, they had put a showrunner with us. That didn't, I ended up being the showrunner, but oh, well. Um, anyway, but so there I was and it was all very um, disruptive to everybody. And I went home and I was like, how am I ever going to do this? And, you know, thinking about it. And then the next day, you know, uh, on the way in, they called and said, there's this thing called COVID. Everybody has to stay at home. <laughs> I was like, for how long? A day? And um, remember that, that when it was first, like, will it just be a week or something? Yeah. And uh, anyway, we never went back. And so into a room. And But the reason why I bring it up is that I feel like in the same way that if I had never been off for one month, I wouldn't have met a husband. I don't think I would have ever made this life transition if it weren't for the fact that I was stuck at home. I couldn't do some of the other things that were supposed to shoot because every, all the production shut down, you know, and I shifted gears into, into writing and uh, supervising all 10 drafts and then writing three. And, and it was, um, it was really fun and really exciting and really challenging, but also felt like I was home, you know, so this is a life change. Would you say? Yeah, I want to keep doing it. You know, I, I really love historical fiction. I, I don't know, like, how far this will go. Like, if I could, I can't see myself, you know, inventing some sci-fi story yet, but, um, <laughs> or if, but I would really like to keep doing it. And I certainly hope that, it, you know, we'll do additional seasons. And I'd really like to keep writing and producing together. And I loved showrunning. That was really fun. Um, hard, 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 especially because I kind of started with The Black Diamond. You know, this was a big show, big stars, three different, you know, periods of shooting, um, very, you know, enormous in every way. So, but Hey, made it through once second time. Well, you know, you could do 13 or 14 seasons, I guess. Why of that? Yeah. 45, <laughs> right. 45. But if we, but if we include first wives and girlfriends and boyfriends, we could go further. There you go. Uh, I, I, yeah. 
Wait, what's it? Wait, the, oh, anyway, years ago <laughs> on Saturday Night Live, when I was but a child, we did a a, 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 jo- a thing with the Mamie Eisenhower Museum of the Boring. <laughs> it was just a big square building with no no windows or anything. And oh that my was god! What we on, they honored her with. <laughs> well, that's so funny. Well, you know. The, the way that we'll structure, you know, continuing seasons is all based. So it was all based on theme. So the first theme, you know, of season one really had to be, you know, kind of voice and sublimation of voice and discovery of voice. But it could be designed for any other. Like it could be scandal in the White House. It could be right. eve of war. It could be whatever racial discrimination. It could be anything that organizes a season. So I think in so many ways, the alchemy is in, you know, what what three women, you know, should we do next, which we're all talking about that, you know, would you know, I, I'd like it to be very different from season one, other than like hopefully training the audience into understanding how to jump from one to another. And some people struggled with it and others, it was easier and we'll get better at it as we go. You know, I think I, now if they get that, like, don't panic, we're going to go move around in history. We'll tell you where we are. We have this little, you know, ticker thing that tells you where you are. And then, you know, but, but if you can you be used to that, then I think we could insert sort of a different kinds of impressions and thoughts and themes and different ways to, to, to organize it. So it's been now 30 years you're doing this. 36. 36. So you mentioned again that the Showtime guys were guys. Do you feel like it's changed? Do you feel like you're, it's on its way? Do you feel like you've made the progress you've been seeking for the last 15, 20 years? Yeah, I do feel that we've made enormous progress and that women are much more, you know, I still think, well, let me put it this way. I think that on the creative side, we've made enormous progress and that there's a a much bigger willingness to invite women to express, create, manage, you know, their, their visions, their ideas, to share stories. Um, You know, I, I would say maybe less so on the decision-making tables Um, you know, I'm a big believer in a very kind of basic rule of, of gender parity, which is that, you know, unless you have gender parity and frankly, diverse parity and diversity as well, but gender parity at at the decision-making, the top decision-making level, that it's very hard to manage under that. It's a trickle down thing because it's sort of in the water, right? Like it has to be that those those people are there, but it's more than there. And, you know, I, I speak out on one thing a lot and I really, I think it helps me answer the question. I think we've made huge strides as it regards diversity, which is, can we count people of diverse, um, you know, gender, ethnicity, sex, sexual preferences, whatever it is. Right. Can we count that in many, many groups? I think the answer is yes. Inclusion to me, which in my mind has been become unnaturally tethered to the word. There's this thing called diversity and inclusion. I don't know where they got so tethered together, but to me, diversity is a counting mechanism. Can you see things that are different? Inclusion is, do you feel heard? Are decisions made that take in, to what you're saying into account, are you allowed to finish your sentence, not be spoken over at the same place at the table, both physically and you know uh, metaphorically? I think we are much, much further behind in inclusion than we are in terms of diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still quite a battle, you know, to to feel like a natural to feel naturally uh, taken seriously without having to point out 
that I should be taken seriously or what I'm saying isn't only because I'm a woman. I'm also saying it because I have a head and a brain and a heart and a soul, you know what I mean? And, and so I think that stuff, I don't feel bitter. I feel really proud of the progress, you know, I feel really, really happy um, about where our industry is going. And, and in some ways, this is one of the benefits of streaming, you know, it's allowed for a lot more storytelling. And I think that's been a door opener. And I actually, and I also think that COVID has been, and I call COVID the great equalizer because um, this thing about speaking in boxes, like we're doing on our Zoom right now, mm-hmm. it took a lot of the bullshit. You said I could curse. It took a lot of the bullshit out of the mix. Like for example, like when I think of what it used to mean to like go to a studio meeting, right? It meant, you know, I drove across town. I had my trunk checked a couple of times. I went up, I waited for a really long time in a lobby everybody was late, went into a room, everybody shuffled around for chairs. You can't sit in this chair. You can't sit in that. This guy gets this one. This one gets that one. Then there's a whole big, like who has what purse and who has which shoes and who looks like they have the most money. And then everybody talks over each other. And all of that, which I lived in for, you know, decades, it seemed to go around sort of go away overnight with zoom when like you, you have to be on time, although I managed not to be today, but you have to, you have to be on time. You feel horrible if you're not, cause then somebody's standing there in a black square and you're like, you know, you have to be on time. You're kind of equal. It's hard to talk over each other. Cause your yellow line prevents that. Mm-hmm. You can't tell really what anyone's wearing or doing or whatever. And also women are really good at it because they're used to multitasking. So all the chaos going on behind, like, you know, there's kids and doors and this and that we're pretty good at it. Men get pretty thrown. So that's, that's been sort of, I'm I'm generalizing. So I think it's been cool. So I think a lot of things are helping, you know, um, the whole process, but it's still, it's still an upwards climb, I think, you know, but it's okay. I always think the freedom to fail is really the, the, the mark of when people are actually really being included. That is so astute. And it's funny you say that because people always, women say, you know, women come up to me all the time, you know, to talk about these issues and to talk about sort of my history and all this. And they always, the the thing they ask the most is why are men allowed to fail and women are, are not? And, you know, I don't know the answer to it, but I think it's sort of like some kind of thing that goes almost back to gaming that with men, it's sort of like, you're very used to, oh, you lost a point, get up, smack them on the back, you'll get the next one. Lose one, win one, run around the base, do the, you know, there's something about this sort of camaraderie of like, we all know we win some, we lose some, and I'll carry you along. Somehow with women, mistakes are really, really punished. And it's very common. Like I watched when I was working in, you know, I've obviously run a couple studios and, you know, you know, and when I was in that kind of a job, I watched it, you know, that, that women, if something went wrong, like there was an economic loss on a movie that a woman was supervising, mm-hmm. there would be these discussions about, let's talk about what went wrong. And are you going to give up your bonus to contribute to the losses of the company? Always. Hey. And then usually a move to a lower floor. Um, and quite literally, I think I wrote an article about that once. It's probably buried here someplace we could find it, but like, you know, about like the journey down the floors as you make mistakes as a woman. And in and, and these companies and the women and the men would make bigger mistakes and lose more money and go up in the floors at the same time. And it was really kind of amazing to watch that. Yeah, it's horrifying. You couldn't fail. You know, you yeah. just couldn't fail as a woman. And then you ask why I become like nervous and neurotic and like a workaholic. It's because you feel like one misstep and you're out. Like you're just so easy. Well, the door to entry is so narrow. 
Right. And it's narrow for men too, but it's not, but the majority of people who are already in the door are men. So when you have a narrow, narrow door and they're only, you know, letting a couple through is challenging, but it shouldn't be, you know? And then it's like, it's a, I think the door being so narrow is one of the biggest things that keeps it from fixing itself. And that if we could get the door a little bit wider, and I think we have gotten the door a little bit wider in the last few years, but you know, whether that sticks or whether it becomes the thing and, you know, everybody's so nervous about everything right now. Well, that's, and that's the bad side of it, right? Like there's like a backlash, you know, I, I remember, you know, when me too intersected with the gender movement, some people think they're the same, but they weren't at all. You know, the gender movement was really about parody. The me too movement was about, you know, sexual abuse. And although they're connected through some, you know, behaviorally and, and sort right. of but they're, they're not the same and they're not at all the same. And then they got very merged in together. But, you know, I think what happened with me too, is that a lot of the progress that we were making with men, you know, to be in, include women and in things, they got terrified, you know, that like, like you said, they like, God forbid, you know, I ask a young woman emerging here, you know, to come to lunch and maybe I can be a mentor to this person or, you know, at least an enabler. Mm-hmm. And then it became, God forbid, if I say something wrong, I'm going to, you know, be mm-hmm. thrown in the clinker like that, that that's a whole problem. And I think right now with this whole issue that nobody can speak freely about the differences between people. Um, it's really hard. It's really hard as writers and as creators, because part of what makes the drama is the differences between people. And you're allowed to talk about it if it's internal, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, it's like, there's this, it's like almost like we have this cap now, like you're, this is the way I look at it. And I think I'm even dangerous talking about this, right. But I will try without putting my foot in my mouth to manage to say that anything interpersonally that's conflict, like, you know, I think we should retire. I think we shouldn't, you know, I was what I'm thinking about Betty Ford, like, that's okay. But if you, if something was like, yeah, but you're thinking that way because you're a woman and I'm thinking this way from a man, or you're thinking that because, you know, of this, your ethnicity versus your ethnicity, like you're stopped right there. Right. So you can't, but all the things still exist, right. We wouldn't be in such a scuffle about this if all of these differences didn't exist. Right. So now you know, it's complicated. When I go all the way back to Crash, you know, that movie was about what happens is that when you feel different from somebody, you get fearful. And when you're fearful, it comes out as racism and bigotry and all of those things. Right. And that's really what that movie was about. And we sort of need to be able to talk about all of this, to overcome differences and to learn about each other. And if we're so stymied that we can't talk about any of it, because by talking about it, we're instantly vilified because we're even talking about it, that's a really fine line to have to to ride. And I think it could hurt us artistically because if we believe that art is our way to enlighten, and I I am a big believer that most people, you know, they do get their information off some kind of a screen one way or another. I think more Mm -hmm. than any other way, I mean, I I know, then it becomes this responsibility. Okay, so if they're gonna see things on a screen, we better show them different kinds of lives and different kinds of people so that we can start to understand each other better so we can stop like, you know, killing each other in wars or electing ridiculous presidents or whatever we're doing, right? Yeah. And, um, and, you know, but if we're too afraid to talk about any of it, that's not gonna help. No, no it's then, very, I, yeah. I turned on the old chorus line or the only chorus line, I guess, movie uh, the other day, cause I remembered how much I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's on Criterion. I, and I, I, 
I, I, I remember performing it when I was a dancer in New York. And I also remember, not on Broadway, by the way. And I also remember um, like liking the music, but I never saw the movie. Yeah. But one of the greatest show, I mean, shows ever, obviously, but the, the, even in this movie, the uh, uh, now thanks to Sis, all married and fat, they cut old married and fat. Really? <laughs> and that was 25 years ago or whatever. I mean, the, even then they were being overly careful. Uh-uh. And you know, what's interesting about that is that, you know, a lot of that show is about like, it's okay to be different. You know, like all those songs, like so many, so much entertainment is about, it's okay to be different, but what is different if we're supposed to pretend we're the same? Right. Well, yeah. the thing is, no matter who you are, no matter what ethnicity you are, your gender, your color, your feel, there always, there's always a line that's going to find you. Yeah. That somebody's going to say you're doing something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and it yeah. doesn't, it's no matter how good you are, no matter how honorable you are, you know, obviously, um, uh, you know, there are cases where people aren't. Yeah. But a lot of times you're, you know, you, you are Jewish and you grew up caring about Israel. And so now you're carrying that baggage that isn't necessarily a belief system or being anti, you know, Palestinian or whatever. It's just, you, you, it's what you carry because we're built by our circumstances and, and we can't all be built the same way. I mean, in some utopian version of it, we would all be, but then we'd also be washed out you know like it almost reminds me of some like bad dystopic you know movie where they take out all the things that make us different like think about this you could easily see that somebody's going to make this movie you know that that you take out everything that makes people different so we're going to have a pure world where we're all the same we all start at the same place and end at the same place and whatever i have a feeling things would get pretty boring pretty fast um and probably we'd all be killing each other for sameness so it's kind of like instead of differences and and you know it's also human nature right so it is really complicated and and I agree with you and I'm not sure where we're going. And I think the comedians, you know, obviously have the hardest role. Like, I mean, comedy is really hard right now and how to do comedy. On my next movie that I'm doing with Anne Hathaway is called Idea of You, you know, for Amazon. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's interesting working on a comedy right now and, and like with the com- constant conversations about what we can and can't do or say, which by nature is forcing us to be too self-censoring for comedy right right it's like dangerous to self-censor in comedy because like the rawness is really like when it gets really funny yeah you know and when it does it's still we it, we love it and naturally you yeah. know like somebody like Chappelle for instance even regardless of where one stands on his you know his issues yeah. with with trans people which I think are really personal and about defending himself in his mind and not yeah really against, I don't think he's really against trans people. I think he's just thinks he's defending himself, which is absurd, but that's a whole nother conversation. Yes. But it's just like, but when he's funny, he's funny. You can't fake a laugh. You can't fake a tear. You don't fake, you know, feeling well, something. Look at Will Smith can't fake that he laughed when right. my joke got made. <laughs> that's, I can't even get into that universe. That's just too weird. But yeah, like, oh God, that, that, yeah. that was just the worst of Hollywood playing itself out. Just the whole thing. I mean, and yeah. even like the whole audience, everybody, like the whole thing was just everything that we're struggling with in Hollywood playing itself out. In well, that the- was that perfect thing where the audience, you know, gave him a standing ovation, regardless of whether they, some of them thought he deserved it, but it's a, it's the person on the stage and wanting to, you know, we're all trained to finish the show and the show must go I, That's so funny you say that. That's what I always tell people. People Because people outside of Hollywood are like, how did that happen that everyone, you know, I said, because we've been, we've had it pounded into each other. The show must go on. The fact that, you know, the rope 
you know, net just fell on your head and, you know, you've got an, you know, and your, your headset is, you know, now wrapped around your elbow and you're still going like, that's what you do. You just keep Mm -hmm. the show. And so we all did that in a big collective. Everyone did that in like one big collective moment. And it was just weirdest group think ever. Um, But really interesting to watch like a crazy social experience experiment. You know, well, I love that you separate out all the pieces because that's kind of what I do in my work as a journalist for the last 25 years is all that's I spend most of my time trying to take deep, break apart <laughs> these kind of like easy answers yeah. that we get in the trades and everywhere else that are, you know, easier to go in that direction and just stay going that direction rather than really split it out and think about it. Oh, my God, we really need to pieces. think about it. Turn on the light because it's getting so dark in here. Um, oh, that's not oh. a good idea. Um, it's always dangerous oh yeah i don't know about that okay um anyway um yeah so so i'm glad you i i it's 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 happy for me to hear somebody else thinking that way where it's not just all you know mush together and find the if the easiest answer and and keep on moving because i think it's very dangerous exactly well thank you Thank you. We thank are well past so our allotted so, time, even yeah, with your tardiness. So and I, I, not only was I late, but then we went past time, but it's been so interesting. I didn't like going past time, but I actually got in trouble okay. this week for, or last week for, we went, I went an hour and a half with an actress and it was just lovely and chatty mm-hmm. and whatever. And their publicist is very upset. <laughs> it's like, she wants to cut oh, it down oh, to 30 God. minutes, no matter oh, what I God. said. Well, you know, it's very, I, I really like that. Yeah. I like that you're, you know, that you're, that it's, that you're interested in intersecting these things because, you know, yeah, you're working on a show, but everything in our lives, you know, informs, and it kind of brings us back in a sort of weirdly neat way to First Lady because so much of the inspiration and the idea of a show behind that and, and like what you're trying to explore is that, you know, nobody, I don't, I, nobody makes decisions in their lives without buying, being influenced by those around them, in particular their family and, you know, closest people. And, and I do think it's true that, you know, these presidents, like it was so interesting to look at what were they, what were they doing? What were they saying? And what was the context that must've been happening in the family that informed, you know, the way that they were talking or behaving. And it is all connected and, and it is, it's, it's like the whole thing is a connected universe. And, and um, you know, I guess that's what we're trying to do as artists is like figure out, you know, what is this, what does it all mean? Yeah. I don't know what it all means. For everybody, but, always. Because yeah. <laughs> it's never different. I mean, you, I always, it was always, for me, it was always living in New York. It was always, you know, there are 40 stories in that bus that just passed. Yeah. And I bet at least half of them are really, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. we'll never know them. I'll never hear about them. Never, you know, so. Oh, my God. That's what I was saying at the beginning. There's this, there's like 15 stories in every bus. I promise you. Yeah. You know, absolutely. But anyway, well, thank you so much. And um, thank you. And I hope Aaron's hair grew back again. Okay. What did you say? That was my biggest concern was that Aaron Eckhart's hair grew back. Okay. Oh my God. Did you, did you hear what actually happened? Is that why no, you know that? I didn't hear that story. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, my poor Aaron. So yeah, I don't know. There was just a really misinformed decision to, to, to shave him. Mm-hmm. this is not like shave him way too wide and then put right. a piece over it. And when he left, he had hair sticking out like, like this and like this. And, and then in between was just like a bald cap. It was the saddest thing I'd ever heard. I'd ever seen. The amazing part was he didn't seem to care anywhere as, mu- as much as the rest of us, just like, what did we do to you? And it was a yeah. bit of an accident on top he of it. Captain but commitment. He is, isn't he? But he is. And he's so captain commitment. He's so amazing in the show. Isn't he? Yeah. And also it's a hard yeah. role. That's one of the hardest roles in the show because he's so 
undefined in certain ways. Yes. As, as Jerry Ford was, but. Um, yeah, to play like, like, what does it mean to be medium? Yeah. You know, like really hard, right? Like, like he was sort of medium in a lot of ways. Like mm-hmm. he's vanilla. Yeah. It's hard something medium. And I think he did an amazing job at it. And I, I loved all the guys. I thought OT Fag, Fag Benelay was incredible as Brock. And, yeah. and, and I love the amazing Kiefer who can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. So, so I knew when you made so him look truly horrible that that would come off when he left the, uh, well, left the studio. <laughs> oh. Wait, you froze for a minute. What did you say? I, when, you, when you made Kiefer look incredibly horrible, I knew that he would look better when he left the studio. But yeah. I could see that Aaron's <laughs> hair was not making that trip. <laughs> so no, yeah. like, Kiefer, like we really aged Kiefer a lot. Yes, like, you did. Yeah, he, he was wearing like and a full prosthetic. Acne or, things and tags all over oh, his face. And, yeah, I know. But, and what about, what about Jillian? Yeah. Well, she starts with the teeth. We're going to work from there. Yeah. <laughs> She's amazing though. They're all amazing. But anyway, thank you so much. Thank and you. it's been a pleasure. It was a pleasure. All right. Take, take a day care. off or two. All right, I will. Or two, or three. Or you three. Two. Maybe three right. in a row would be a Take miracle. three days off. All right, Bye. see you later. Bye. Bye-bye.